Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. My guest today is Caroline Criado-Perez, campaigner, author, and a woman who takes the use of pronouns seriously. Caroline, you said you had your feminist awakening as a result of reading a linguistics book on pronouns and gender while studying English literature at Oxford. I think you need to tell us what so (laughs) caught your imagination. Yeah, I know. So it was called Feminism and Linguistic Theory, which I accept is not, you know, the most likely candidate for feminist awakening. But what can I say? I'm really into grammar. So it was looking at male default in language. And when I went to Oxford, I was a mature student. I was 25. I'd never really read any feminism before. I hadn't been political before I went to university. And the only thing I really knew about feminism was that it was embarrassing and that I definitely wasn't a feminist. And I think that that was the case for a lot of girls growing up in the 90s in the UK where feminism was definitely seen as a dirty word and I definitely internalised that. The book mentioned this thing about how the use of he to mean he or she or man to mean humankind. And that was something I'd come across before, but only ever in the context of someone denigrating it, using it to trivialise feminists. So saying things like, you know, why do feminists care about pronouns? You know, this is such a trivial issue. And I definitely would have been part of that crowd saying, you know, everyone knows it means he or she. Why do we care about this? Haven't they got more important things to worry about? But then the next line in the book said that when women read or hear these words, they picture a man. And that just blew my mind because I realised, first of all, that I was picturing a man. But more than that, I just thought, how have I never noticed this? How have I never noticed? I'm 25 and I've never noticed that whenever I hear these words, and in fact, whenever I hear any word where it's not specified that we're talking about a woman, I'm always picturing men. And that just was so shocking. And I think it also, not sort of immediately then, but after a little while of thinking, it led me to realise that perhaps this sort of head being full of men 
may have contributed to how easily I bought into the idea that feminism is rubbish and that if women want to do better in the world, they should just stop being so trivial and obsessed with clothes and shopping and, you know, should maybe be interested in other things because I just sort of believed the cultural stereotype because that's how women are represented. And I know that seems mad because I am a woman and I didn't know any women like that, but... I think it takes like a really special kind of person to be able to see past all that and not buy into the overwhelming narrative that we're fed in films and books and TV and advertising and all the ways in which women are represented in this particular way. That is what caught my imagination. (laughs) That was the light bulb moment. That was the light bulb moment. Having thought feminism was a pretty embarrassing word, when would you have first used it about yourself? I don't know. (laughs) Probably not long after that. I mean, it was a pretty quick, it wasn't a sort of gradual becoming. It was like, oh my goodness, this is unbelievable. And then quickly following on from there, absolute rage. Um, Absolute rage. (laughs) Absolute rage, yeah. Because I, I genuinely did believe this cultural stereotype about women. And I felt so angry that I had believed that because, you know, I thought about the impact it had had on me growing up, that I had felt that my sex was an obstacle to be overcome. I was very aware of it. You know, I remember consciously finding it exhausting meeting new people because each new person that you met, you would have to convince to treat you not the way women are treated, but to treat you with respect and as a human being. And somehow I didn't, you know, connect the two in my head and become a feminist at that point. I just had enough awareness to know I didn't want to be treated that way and that I knew that women were seen that way, but I didn't want to be treated that way. That's a pretty exhausting way to live your teens and early 20s. And and sort of the more that I looked into it, the more that I realised that not only was there this sort of male default going on in language and the way that we represent women is unfair, but also the fact that women have been underrepresented, you know, and I hadn't been taught about amazing women in science and in history. And I'd been taught male authors and male poets and male playwrights and had basically been denied access to the history of women. Yeah, I was really angry and I still am really angry. And you've used that anger to fuel some successful campaigning, which has raised the visibility of women. Famously, you got Jane Austen on the £10 note, drawing on the Equality Act to hold the Bank of England to account, getting people to sign petitions, even threatening legal action. What drove you in that campaign and what convinced you that it really matters who's on our currency? Well, it's because all these little instances add up and they all add up to this overall narrative and message that women haven't done anything and also that women aren't 50% of the population you know which we are and as I discovered in the research for my book actually that has huge implications and really serious implications for women but at that point I didn't know about the gender data gap in sort of medicine and science I just knew I guess about the gender data gap in my own head and I knew the impact that it had had on me and so This was just one instance, but you could pick on any instance, really. It was symbolic, of course, and I never sort of thought that fixing the representation of women on banknotes, although let's be clear, it's not fixed because there's still only one. I knew that that was a way of having a conversation about this. And I also knew that, you know, currency is something that everyone has access to. We see it all the time. And it's just this daily drumming in of this background noise of the only people that are worth knowing about are men. And it's specifically in this case, white men. Is Jane Austen a good role model to have on a banknote? I think she is. She, I mean, she wasn't actually my choice. I didn't have a choice. I was just campaigning for female representation. And the bank chose Jane Austen. I have a sort of, 
I guess, bittersweet reaction to it, in that I feel that the reason they chose her was because they thought of her as this sort of safe, conservative, ladylike, you know, everyone likes a lady novelist choice. <laughs> and she writes about nice things like, you know, Mr. Darcy marrying Lizzie. And in a way, that's the genius of Jane Austen, that she's been fooling us for 200 years, because actually, of course, she's incredibly subversive. And she writes very incisively about actually the representation of women. So, I mean, in fact, one of the, the epigraphs of my book is taken from Northanger Abbey, where Catherine Morland is talking about history. And she says, the quarrels of popes and kings and barely women, any women at all, this is very tiresome. Or in Persuasion, where the main character Anne is having an argument with a man who is saying, I can point to any sort of literature to show you how fickle women are. And she points out that, well, men have written all that. So, um, and of course, you know, she writes incredibly about how constrained women's lives were and how, you know, we see it as this sort of lovely romantic comedy where the woman gets the man. But actually what she was really writing about was that that was all women had. They had getting the man. If they didn't get the man, that was it. And so the quotation that the Bank of England chose, I think, kind of sums it up of how... Jane Austen managed to kind of pull the wool over our eyes is that they, this is obviously some poor, I don't know, intern or whatever, Google Jane Austen <laughs> reading quotation, <laughs> get rid of this annoying woman who's petitioning us. And they came up with, there is no enjoyment I declare like reading. And actually, that is a line that's completely dripping with irony. It's Caroline Bingley who said it just after she's put a book down and the book is the second volume to the book that Mr. Darcy is reading and the only reason she picked up the book in the first place is to get into Mr. Darcy's pants. <laughs> um, so that line on the surface level seems so banal and, you know, trite, but actually it's just full of all this meaning about the way in which women had to behave in a certain way in order to be able to catch a man. So, yes, I think she is a good role model. <laughs> no one's ever going to look at a tenor the same now you've said that. <laughs> you were one day running around in London's Parliament Square. Uh, your small dog, Poppy, is with you today and Poppy needed a break outside and suddenly you had another light bulb moment. What was that? Yeah, so it was International Women's Day 2016 and I had just done a panel on female representation and I had another panel in the afternoon and I needed to exercise my dog. And one panel was in East London and one was in West London, so I ran. And funnily enough, just like after the panel, like when I do panels, often people come up to me afterwards and ask me questions, one of which is often, so what's your next campaign going to be? And I said, well, I'm not going to run a campaign for a while, probably because I'm just really busy right now. And I don't, you know, I've got a, I'm a freelance writer. I've got to earn a living. <laughs> then went for a fateful run through Parliament Square <laughs> and I ran past Churchill and I ran past David Lloyd George and I ran past a guy who I discovered later was called Jan Smuts and I suddenly thought hang on a minute <laughs> it's surely not this can't actually be all men and so I went and I looked and I counted them all and they really were all men 11 statues of men and I just couldn't believe it you know it was 2016 Parliament Square is such a high profile, important square. We know so much about the underrepresentation of women in politics and why it matters that women are underrepresented in politics. And how was it that in this incredibly symbolic space, no one had thought to correct this? But as I said, I just said I didn't want to start a campaign. So I sent a tweet hoping that someone else would start the campaign and carried on running, ran through St. James's Park and round Green Park and basically realised as I was running back, 
from Green Park towards St James's Park that I was composing the campaign text in my head. So I gave into the inevitable and I literally sat down outside Buckingham Palace and set the petition up on my phone. <laughs> A pretty good place to sit down. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it just sort of, I think that people think that I plan these things and the truth is I absolutely don't. No, I really didn't want to start this campaign. But I think campaigns happen to me. <laughs> and there just comes, there comes a thing that I just can't let go of. You can't get and, it out of your head yeah. until and you act on it. I just think, okay, fine, I, just, I have to do this. Thank goodness you did, because now Millicent Fawcett, the suffragist, is there in London's Parliament Square. Do you think seeing her immortalised in stone is going to inspire women as they walk past? Well, I hope so, and I think so. I mean, I get sent messages fairly regularly from people on Twitter and friends, people who are walking through Parliament Square, always commenting on how Millicent Fawcett is the statue that people are always hanging out with and taking selfies with, which is brilliant because that is exactly what I intended. You know, when we were creating the brief for Gillian Waring, who's the brilliant artist who ended up designing the statue, you know, that was one of the number one things that I wanted from it was that it would be something that people would want to interact with and would make people stop and learn about this amazing woman. And I think actually the quotation that she is holding up on her banner is also incredibly inspiring. So I sort of hope not just that ordinary people walking past will be inspired, but I, I hope that, you know, MPs as they walk past glance to the right and see Millicent Fawcett standing there telling them to have courage. <laughs> Hopefully that role modelling does make a difference and the taking of courage. In those campaigns which have been incredibly successful, you've used social media, particularly Twitter, and made use of online petitioning. And we know that petitions have played a big role in the feminist struggle, women sending their views into parliaments to get things changed. What do you think makes a successful campaign and how have you managed to elevate the issues that you've campaigned on so that they've got so much attention when really everybody's feeds is full of things to think about and petitions mm. to sign all day, every day? I think that it's about choosing both what you're campaigning on and the way in which you choose to campaign on it very, very carefully. I think that people sometimes make the mistake of thinking that whatever you want to change, a petition is the right way to do it. And it absolutely isn't. A petition is a very specific campaigning tool. It really only works for a single issue campaign, something that is very easily understood and that can be got across in, well, originally 140 characters and which you doesn't need a complicated backstory or for you to sort of know anything about it beforehand. Just a very clear, basic injustice. Similarly, that is exactly the kind of campaign that can be run by a single person, right? So like, I mean, just to sort of give an, a, a sort of ridiculous example, I couldn't either run a campaign or do a successful petition on ending patriarchy, mm. right? Because who is the chief patriarch that I'm applying to to end patriarchy? You know, what does success look like? How does it get achieved? All of these things are not obvious. There's too much going on. There's too much to change. And one person can't possibly do it on their own. And also there is no sort of clear mechanism by which someone can say yes to this petition and make that happen. So basically, I mean, I think that's what it is, is that I have a very clear ask. There's a very clear mechanism by which it can be done. There's a very clear person who's in charge of that. And that is the way in which 
you run a campaign, that you can run a campaign on your own, you can run a campaign using petition. And I think that the mistake that a lot of people make is seeing these successful campaigns and thinking, well, that's the way every campaign should be run. It absolutely isn't. I mean, for example, I'm working with the People's Vote now. That's not going to be one with a petition. It's not a single issue campaign. Where did that campaign savvy come from, though? How did you learn those skills? Are there role models you've looked up to in that sort of activist sphere? Not not really. Sorry, I haven't got a good answer for that. I mean, I'm really passionate about it. I just really care about this. And that's how I do it. There's no sort of secret. There's no training camp that I went to. It's literally just, I care about this. I'm angry about this. And it's something that I'm prepared to put a lot of time and effort into it. I mean, I think that's the other thing that people, if they are considering embarking on a campaign, need to know is that it is really hard work and it takes over your life and it is thankless and it is difficult and it's often lonely and it's exhausting. And so I think the successful campaigns are basically the people who just care enough in many ways and have enough time. So, I mean, I was very lucky that when I ran my first campaign, I was actually a student studying for my master's, which I didn't end up finishing. And then they kicked me out. So I had time to run a campaign. And then when I was doing my Millicent Fawcett campaign, you know, I was a freelance writer and also then I was working on a book. So again, I had that kind of flexible schedule. And I think that's pretty important as a campaigner because you're fitting it in in your spare time. You've changed the pound, you've changed Parliament Square, but it's come with a cost, hasn't it? And you've just talked about some of the cost in terms of time and energy. But there's also been a shocking level of abuse that you've had to suffer from online trolls. You've talked about how at the height of your visibility when you were doing these campaigns, you received 50 threats of rape and murder every hour. And as a result, you found it hard to cope. You lost half a stone in two days. How did you fight on through that and what can we do so that other campaigners, other women, don't have to put up with that kind of vile misogyny on social media? I think the only way that is going to stop is when the men who do it stop being scared of women. And the only way those men are going to stop being scared of women is when women are no longer seen as encroaching on male space, i.e. the project is complete. And we've taken over. No, not we've taken over. But it comes from a place of fear and it comes from a sense of injustice that they feel that we are taking something that belongs to them. And that thing is the right to speak in public, the right to take up space in public. And that is something that they are taught through, you know, in the same way that I was taught that women are trivial and and superficial. It's taught through our culture in films, in books, in magazines, in newspapers, in politics, in every way that we represent the world as 70 to 80% male. Little boys are imbibing this message that the public space belongs to them. And so it's almost inevitable. It's natural in a way that they would react like this, particularly given while we have, to a certain extent, expanded the boundaries of what it means to be a woman. And obviously there's a huge way to go Women are still massively, massively constrained in the way that they can behave. But in all sorts of ways, 100 years ago, you and I certainly wouldn't have been sitting here having this discussion. You know, what it means to be a woman has changed. What it means to be a man has changed much less. And the idea of what a successful man is, is still very much predicated on the idea of power, particularly over women. And so there's nothing really that we can do other than carry on doing what we're doing. You know, I sort of feel like, the women who are doing it now 
and are putting up with this kind of abuse, and I know you've had it as well, I almost feel like the onus is on us to just carry on taking it so that eventually enough of us will be there and there will be a critical mass and we just won't be seen as threatening because we'll just be normal. We'll be as normal as a man. And that's when it will stop. Where did you personally, though, sort of find the, the guts to keep doing that? Oh, I'm that? just very stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think a bit of stubborn comes in handy. I can be pretty yeah. stubborn myself. And I think just, you know, screw these guys. Like, they, they want me to shut up. They want me to move off. And I'm not going to do that. And, and so I've got the rage already of I feel so angry at the way that I was denied female role models. It's just, yeah, stubbornness and rage and coffee. <laughs> Lots of coffee. <laughs> Do you think the social media companies could be doing more, though? Absolutely. And I think that they have got themselves into a difficult position now because they have created this certain expectation, this certain culture where this is seen as acceptable and where this is where this thrives. And it's, I think, much harder to put the genie back in the box now that it's been let out. But they certainly could be doing more. They could be, I think, for a start, employing far more women who understand the intricacies of how misogyny works. Because, you know, if you've got a team of mainly male moderators, they won't necessarily understand in the same way a woman would whether or not a post is actually threatening or offensive or misogynist because they don't live it and they don't therefore understand the intricacies of it. So I think that that is part of the problem. And it's also a problem with the way it was designed. I mean, the situation when I was getting all these rape and death threats on Twitter was so clearly designed by someone who never thought about the issue of people getting rape and death threats. Because in order to report one, you had to go to a totally separate website, fill out a whole form for every single threat separately, and type out the threat you'd received, which in itself is not something you really want to do, explain why it was threatening. And it was this hugely laborious procedure, clearly intended... A, to put people off doing it, but B, on the assumption that nothing very serious was going to get sent to anyone. So, you know, let's not really bother making this streamlined or easy. So things have definitely got better. And it's a shame that so many women had to be so terrified and sent into hiding, basically, before Twitter acted on it. But I think they have now got a better understanding, but it's still absolutely not good enough. Mm, Absolutely not good enough. I agree. Does it frustrate you that you do have to talk about online abuse? I mean, you didn't choose it, but we've Mm. just had a conversation about it. Does that annoy you that that's part of what people associate when they hear your name? They know you've been through this experience. Honestly, yes. I hate it. I hate being rape threat girl. Mm. And I've worked really, really hard to be able to talk about other things. And I feel like I've achieved that. So I'm known for other things now, which is nice. But definitely for a while there, it was just... Constant, constant. I mean, part of the way I did it was just refusing to go on the media and talk about it anymore because I was just getting calls every day from the media wanting to talk about some kind of social media horror. And, you know, this was an incredibly traumatic experience and I didn't want to just be parading it around and talking about it all the time. I mean, it's been... Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 2013, I think. So it's been a good like few years now, and I don't find it as painful as I did. But for a while there, yeah, it was really, really difficult. And I didn't want to be talking about it all the time. And also, I didn't want my life to be defined by this thing that had been done to me rather than the things that you've got to do. Yeah. And one of those things, of course, is you've got a fantastic new book out called Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. And it canvasses in a lot of detail how gender bias is inherent in research data and all of the ways that impacts everything, medical care, health and safety, the design of workplaces, the list goes on and on and on. Mm. When did you focus on that level of gender data gap? It's a different level from looking back at the received history and Mm. what was taught in school. How did you get focused on that specifically? Well, I think the two are intensely connected. And I think it was because of that background that I ended up writing the book. But the specific trigger for me was... When I was researching my first book, I came across this issue of heart attacks that women don't tend to experience what are seen as just the heart attack symptoms, which I think everyone knows. If you're having pain in your chest Chest. and down the left arm, you're having a heart attack. Well, actually, only one in eight women has chest pains when they're having a heart attack, and they're much more likely to experience nausea, fatigue, what feels like indigestion, breathlessness, and... I was incredibly shocked that I had not been told this and that I had been thinking that I knew what to look out for when it came to a heart attack. I was incredibly shocked to find that women's heart attack symptoms, which are very typical for women, are called atypical. I was shocked to find that doctors were also not recognising these symptoms and that therefore women were much more likely to die following a heart attack than men. And women are 50% more likely to be misdiagnosed than men. And this was just, again, I guess this is another light bulb moment. Just this mind-blowing, wait, medicine isn't objective? You know, you sort of... (laughs) It's not about the facts. Right. We we live in this world where we kind of worship at the altar of objective facts and science and data. And increasingly so as, you know, big data takes over the world. And we are taught to rely on it and put our faith in it. And this is going to be a better world. And then it turns out the data is just hopeless when it comes to women. So that was shocking and, again, enraging. <laughs> and, and I think, as I said, because of my background of, of noticing male default and to know that it wasn't just in culture but in science. So I just started looking into it and then discovered it's everywhere. And that's a shocking example, literally a life and death example. Mm. But as you went about the research for the book, what else just blew your mind when you discovered it? I think the car safety data is, again, incredibly shocking because it's about saving lives and we know that women get into cars. (laughs) (laughs) And yet we have been designing car safety around the 50th percentile male which is the most commonly used car crash test dummy. And in fact, until very recently, was the only car crash test dummy that was used. And of course, that's too tall for the average woman. It's too heavy for the average woman. It doesn't take into account all sorts of um, anthropometric differences between men and women. So women have different spinal columns. We have different muscle mass and weight distribution. 
we have breasts, <laughs> right? And I mean, that sounds like such a small thing, but so many seatbelts don't work properly for women, partly because of our breasts. And for, particularly for pregnant women, they don't accommodate the baby bump. And in fact, car crashes are the number one cause of fetal death from trauma. Women don't sit in what's called the standard seating position because the pedals are too far away for us to reach. So we have to sit too far forward and then we're at more risk of serious injury on a frontal collision. And then even when they have designed this, what they call a female crash test dummy, it's just a scaled down male dummy. And as I've just been explaining, women are very much not just scaled down men. And so the result is that women are 47% more likely to be seriously injured and 17% more likely to die if they're in a car crash. And <laughs> how, how I mean, I think that speaks for itself, you know, that just yeah. is incredibly shocking. How could all of this been overlooked for so long? I think that it's because we are so used to not seeing women as 50% of the population. I mean, I always think of this guy, actually, who got in touch with me when I was running the banknotes campaign. And he said, but women are everywhere now, in this sort of outraged tone of voice. And clearly, you know, they're not everywhere. I was having to campaign pretty hard for one woman <laughs> on the back of a banknote. And we know the stats on female representation in films and female representation in leadership and politics. Women are categorically not everywhere now. But this guy was experiencing it as women are everywhere now. And I think that that is just indicative of how pervasive this mindset is that 50% when it comes to women is about 20%. And I really think that that's, that's what it is. It's that we're not noticing. And, and, you know, it makes sense when you look at, for example, the excuses that get rolled out. They just wouldn't make these excuses if they were really thinking that women are 50% of the population and therefore just as important, just as relevant as men. So when it comes to medical research, an excuse that often gets trotted out is that women's bodies are too complicated. Actually, I mean, that's just across the board, like when it comes to travel planning, the economy, everything. Women are just too complicated. But in medicine, women's bodies are too complicated. We're too hormonal. We've got these pesky menstrual cycles. And so therefore we can't be tested on. Well, that would only make sense as an argument if you weren't thinking that, well, these are 50% of the bodies that are going to be taking the drugs, that are going to be experiencing the diseases. Therefore, it's a pretty important body to test on. I mean, I think it's just that. And, and that's why I think it's so important that we do address the issue of cultural representation, that I don't think it's a minor issue that you can just forget about and just focus on the data representation, because I think the underrepresentation of women in data is a direct result of the way that we underrepresent women in culture. When you were researching for the book, these examples you've given us are, you know, incredibly serious examples. Were there just some that you laughed out loud about? Actually, yes, there was one in, well, God, there's a few. When you say that, I just think there's so many. There's the Viagra, there's the female Viagra, there's the male Viagra, there's the, well, I'll tell you the one that I thought of first, and then I can tell you the Viagra stories if you're interested. So the, the first story was, so it's in sports science, and the traditional recommendation is that you should carb load before a race. So if you're running a marathon, you eat your pasta the night before or whatever. Exactly. You can tell I haven't run a marathon. That's <laughs> <laughs> basically it. I, I mean, who would run a marathon? It's a terrible idea. So they decided to see whether this would work in women. Never been tested in women before. They did it and they discovered that actually, no, carb loading doesn't work in women. In fact, in order for women to get even something like half of the benefit 
they would have to eat so many carbs that they would have eaten so much that it would totally counter, you know, balance the positive impacts of the carb. And the reason is that women burn fat more than they burn carbs at first, like it's reversed. So if men burn carbs first, women tend to burn fat first. And so they speculated in the paper, well, maybe women should be fat loading before races. Unfortunately, however, all the fat loading studies have been done in men. <laughs> so we can't actually tell. And I did actually just laugh when I read that because I just thought that's just, <laughs> I mean, you kind of have to laugh at that point. You'd, you'd better tell us the Viagra story. <laughs> so there's two Viagra stories. I'll tell you the female one first because it's shorter. So basically they developed what they called female Viagra. Obviously it's a different compound and it's intended for female libido. And they discovered that it may interact negatively with alcohol. Probably tell where this is going. So they decided to test this, which was the right thing to do. But they tested it in 23 men and two women. Now this is... <laughs> A drug intended for women. women. <laughs> and if there's one thing that the layperson knows, let alone doctors, it's that women experience alcohol differently to men. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, that was pretty amazing. I don't know, like, how does something like that happen? So the male Viagra story is actually, I think it sort of encapsulates the whole issue. So for those who don't know how Viagra was discovered, it was discovered by accident in a trial for heart medication. And of course, it was an all-male trial for heart medication and didn't work for that, but they discovered this side effect. Yeah. And so they then did very quickly after that tests on this and Viagra, as we know, it was put on the market a few years later. And that was, I think, in the late 90s. 2013, a researcher figures out that the way that this active ingredient works could be useful for period pain. And period pain, basically the only commonly available is ibuprofen. And any other drugs that exist often have side effects and just don't necessarily work that well. You know, there's a good reason to try and test this. So he put on this small, got some funding to put on a small scale trial. And the primary hypothesis was that it could provide four hours of continuous pain relief with no side effects compared to a placebo. And that was what they were finding when they started the study. But they ran out of funding, so they couldn't confirm the primary objective. But, you know, they had these, this promising study. And so he went and he tried to get more funding twice from the National Institute of Health in America. And both times was turned down on the basis that it wasn't a public health priority. <sighs> so, you know, erectile dysfunction is a serious issue. No one's going to deny that but it affects far fewer men and <laughs> period pain affects women. And so first of all, there's this disparity in, you know, the funding situation to see it as a priority. But second of all, you sort of think if women had been included in the first trial, you know, maybe by this point we would have a period pain medication. Because the, the other question is, you know, why don't pharma companies take it on? Well, it's because you can't make money out of it anymore because it's a generic drug now. Right. So, so not a... back then, there was loads of money to be made because it was this new compound and so they could make money of it and they made Viagra. And if there had been women in that trial, they might have discovered period pain solution and then there also would have been money to be made for it in that way. I don't know if it would have happened. They might still have gone for erectile dysfunction. But, you know, it would have had a chance <laughs> at least. Whereas now it's just not a public health priority, so the National Institute of Health won't fund it. 
We've been talking about the visibility of women in public places, in our narrative, and also in the data that you've studied so much for your book. Can I just pull you back now to the first campaign you were ever involved in, which was called The Women's Room, and that was about women's voices in the public space and getting journalists to recognise that there are many women who can be used as expert commentators. At the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, we did research into the gender balance of those quoted as experts by the UK media last year and found that men are nearly four times more likely to be quoted as an expert source. When you're confronted by information like that, how little the degree of change has been, what's your reaction? (laughs) I think laughing first is probably good for the soul. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just sort of despair, really. You know, it's just so disappointing. And, And I don't understand how it is that they still don't get it. You know, we've been talking about this for so long and we've been speaking to the media for so long and there are so many resources out there. And I know producers are busy, but they just need to try harder. Mm. It's just as simple as that. This is really important. This is about public debate. This is about representing society in an accurate fashion. You know, that is what the media's job is and they're not doing their job. Exactly. And not that hard, given how many credentialed women uh, you've shown through your women's room are around and available to give expert opinions. I'm going to move now to our big questions section. These are questions and issues. You're ready? Questions and issues we raise with every guest. We start with a fact for our guests to react to. So your fact Amnesty International led an investigation into the abuse women face online and it found that women around the world are abused on Twitter every 30 seconds. Total lack of surprise. Total lack of surprise? Yeah. Every 30 seconds? I mean, have you been on Twitter recently? (laughs) It's a cesspit. Yes. It's awful. And it's, I'm not saying it's okay. Obviously, it's not okay. But I get abused on there every day. I know that this happens. It's not surprising. We need to do something about it, but I'm not surprised. What's the worst misogyny you've had to deal with in your career? We've talked about the misogyny that you faced online, but are there other experiences that you would point to? I think that some of the worst misogyny is the stuff that is most difficult to explain and highlight. You know, everyone understands that a rape threat and a death threat is not okay, and they are really frightening, but at least you haven't got people sort of telling you that it's not a problem. Actually, some of the misogyny I find most difficult to deal with is the way that women are patronised, particularly by left-wing men. Because with the sort of overt misogyny, it's just out there. With misogyny from men on the left, it's like they're gaslighting you with it, and they are pretending that they're feminist but actually treating you like you're an idiot and so it makes it harder for you to call it out because people would be looking quizzically what are you complaining about yeah and they don't necessarily understand it and it's the way that i think what left-wing men tend to do is trivialize feminism and act like it's not as important as the other fights and almost there's this sense among certain left-wing men that misogyny doesn't even really exist There was this really interesting study that I quote in the book, which looked at Republican 
women versus Democrat women in America and how Republican women, and it's similar in the UK, you know, we've had two female prime ministers in the Tory party, none from Labour. So Republican women were much more likely to get to the top than Democrat women. And basically they found through this research that it seemed to be because there were too many Democrat women so that they couldn't be treated as tokens and therefore not as a threat. So if there aren't enough women, you can have some women do well because, well, there are exceptions. When you have too many women, suddenly they represent a threat to male power. And this is something actually that I think is backed up by a lot of the other research I read, which found that the more women there are in a legislature, actually the more aggressive the men in that legislature become towards the women, the more overtly sexist they become. And there's something very specific about the misogyny from men on the left that I find particularly difficult to cope with because they're meant to be on your side. And actually some of the worst misogyny I've encountered of that kind has been from men in politics. Hmm. It's really interesting. Very different to my experience. But oh, really? Yeah. And, and obviously the conservative progressive dynamic is different in my experience mm. because I've the only woman to have served and coming from the progressive side of politics. Well, maybe Very we need to move to Australia. <laughs> Always welcome. <laughs> uh, if for 24 hours you had all the power in the world, you could do absolutely anything, what would you do to change women's lives? It's very simple. I would close the gender data gap. <laughs> <laughs> Virginia Woolf says, anything may happen when womanhood has ceased to be a protected occupation. What does Caroline say? I, I mean, it kind of reminds me of one of my favourite quotations. See, I'm cheating now. I'm just making someone else speak for me. <laughs> but Mary Wollstonecraft, when she says, why are girls to be told that they resemble angels but to sink them below women? And that sounds like a similar kind of thing there, the idea that we are turning women into these perfect, elevated, protected beings. And actually it's just a con, because it's a way to deny them their own agency and their own humanity. So I say right on, sister. <laughs> I think that's a wonderful response. Virginia would be very proud. Thank you so much. Thank I've enjoyed you. our conversation. You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with King's Online and additional editing by Nick Hilton. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We'll come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.